Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me as ever, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And we're delighted to be joined by Spiked columnist and author of the brilliant How Woke One, Joanna Williams. Hello. Coming up on today's show, The Twitter Files, Harry and Meghan and The Unravelling of Mermaids. So last weekend, a huge kind of dump of information about Twitter, um, in particular in in relation to its antics with censorship, uh, was revealed. It's been called the Twitter Files. Um, it was given to journalist Matt Taibbi. Tom, there's some really kind of exciting revelations in this. Do you want to mm. spell some of those out? And there'll be more to come as well by the mm. time this podcast lands. People might know more than we do at this point in time. But yes, it's the sort of first instalment of the Twitter files that's been called has been um, was released by Matt Taibbi on Twitter in a Twitter thread, quite naturally. It's in many ways kind of spelling out what many people already suspected mm. or what everyone already knew but didn't really see the kind of full grim detail. Um, but what we have been shown is really quite startling. So at first, just kind of spelling out how much Twitter by 2020 had become, in many respects, the kind of personal censor of the Democratic Party in yeah. many respects. So um, Taibbi shows screenshots of the Biden team um, or correspondence from within Twitter talking about certain tweets that the Biden team had flagged up with the response coming from another exec. These have been handled. Mm. Um, he makes a note of the fact that naturally the Trump campaign were also agitating for all kinds of Twitter accounts to be taken down. That won't be a surprise to anyone, but it was quite clear the slant in relation to how successful the Biden team were. And then what it builds up to is the really the seminal Twitter censorship scandal, really, which is the treatment of the Hunter Biden files. Um, the Huge expose from the New York Post um, for, um, alleging that Hunter Biden had been embroiled in all these dodgy dealings in Ukraine and that Joe Biden himself was directly kind of implicated in them. As we all know, that um, story was suppressed not just by Twitter, but also by Facebook. Twitter really went the whole hog with that, you know, locked the posts out of their own accounts. You couldn't even share it in private messages. Taibi points out that's a measure that is usually reserved for like child pornography and things like this. Yeah. So they really went nuclear on this particular instance. And what you see from all of these screen grabs is just how they were essentially just making it up as they went along. Mm. So you have um, Twitter's general counsel, this guy called James Baker, formerly the FBI, incidentally, which is an important detail for later, suggesting that this is about their hacked materials policy, where you've got other people saying, I don't think it is part of our hacked materials policy, and just essentially saying that they were doing it out of an abundance of caution in a yeah. climate in which that particular expose was denounced by the kind of security establishment and by the Democrats as Russian disinformation, just reflexively. And as we all know, 18 months later, even the mainstream press, or I say, the mainstream liberal pressure, we say, have corroborated that those emails were legit. So it's just uh, really a kind of play-by-play -play account of a huge censorship scandal that we already knew about, but mm. has effectively um, made clear that the old regime at Twitter have nowhere to hide when it was quite clear that this was a kind of partisan-inspired hit job, really. Whether they were conscious of it or not is a completely other question. It's very hard to rule one way or another, but you quite clearly see the political slant that was going on there yeah. and also the way in which they were basically kind of censoring this story first and asking questions later. And that's just been laid out in very stark detail with this particular 
expose. Absolutely. I mean, I think what really struck me was that, that there were no huge revelations, mm. as far as I'm aware, to come out of the um, Twitter files themselves. There was nothing that was so shocking that we hadn't already suspected or didn't already know that was happening. But I think what was surprising was just to have confirmed, almost in black and white imprint, just how routine this censorship was as yeah. a part of these people's jobs. And it's that very casual two-word phrase kind of handled it. Mm. And mm. it just suggests that this was something that they were doing daily day in, day out, wasn't a surprise. It was just considered to be part of a job. And you think this is uh, essentially collusion between big tech and the FBI. And this was something which had become a normal part of the job for lots of people uh, to to undertake this censorship. Uh, I think, it, I mean, it was also happening in this country. I think it, it does raise a lot more questions about that relationship between the state and big tech. Um, um, the Matt Hancock diaries uh, reveal that when Matt Hancock was concerned about misinformation in a social media in relation to COVID, the first thing he did was pick up the phone and give his former colleague, uh, current friend, um, Clegg, Nick Clegg, a mm. ring at Facebook mm. and, and ask for particular sources of information to be quelled there. And of course, the response comes back very immediately. Oh, yes, of course. You know, again, it, it's this kind of just very routine, no questions asked, part of the job, done it. But again, the other thing that really shocks me is, is how little response there's been, as you raised in your article on Spike this week, Tom, in the media about it. Yeah. Um, but also, even at the time that, that this was going on, the media ha have to kind of ignore this story now because they were so incurious, yeah. I think is perhaps a tactful mm. way of putting it, at the time that this New York Post story broke. They colluded in this censorship as well by not asking more questions, by not discussing the story themselves. Well, it's interesting. I mean, some of the the way that it has been reported where it has been, you know, the BBC didn't really give it much treatment. They, they sort of put it into a bigger story, into another story about mm. Trump saying something mental about wanting to, you know, annihilate the constitution or whatever, or whatever it was. But a lot of liberal journalists in, in, um, in the U S have actually taken to attacking Taibbi for mm. revealing this, you know, essentially saying that he's just doing PR for Elon Musk, or they're saying that this story is essentially a nothing burger, or even some people are trying to suggest that really the Hunter Biden laptop was just about pornographic photos on mm. his laptop rather than the actual substance. Um, you know, talk about dodgy dealings with Ukraine or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Tom, what have you made of that kind of response? Well, I think, as Joe was saying, that this is a, a kind of a displacement activity because whether they want to recognise it or not, they were willful kind of collaborators in the mm. suppression of this particular story and the downplaying of big tech censorship in general. Yeah. They just think, well, it's the most sensible thing in the world. Why wouldn't this take place? Um, a lot of the revelations, I remember there were a lot of um, leading kind of liberal elite journalists in America saying, well, this is just the normal goings on that one would expect at a big tech firm, which is incredible, especially when you see the tenor of the attacks against Taibbi saying that he's, you know, doing PR, as you say, particularly with the Hunter Biden story, but before then and since as well, the American sort of liberal media establishment have been doing PR for, for instance, the security services for quite some time. I mean, yeah. the Hunter Biden expose, the reason, the pretext on which it was rubbished was this idea that it was just Russian disinformation. Kind of after, almost after the story was suppressed, you saw kind of ex-spooks come out and say that this, <laughs> quite fascinatingly saying, we haven't had a look at it and we don't know for sure, but it has all the hallmarks of yeah, Russian yeah, disinformation. Yeah. And what we now know, which is not explicitly referenced in the Twitter files, but you can see it in a lot of the reporting around it, um, both in the New York Post as well as The Intercept, which is a story we talked about a few weeks ago, which is that they're 
the it's not just a kind of loose relationship it seems like on this yeah. particular story so people had heard previously from mark zuckerberg's own mouth that in the run up to the 2020 election there had been say fbi officials approaching facebook and saying you got to get ready for some kind of misinformation dump potentially involving one of the candidates so in that sense they were primed to do it but since then there has been reporting suggesting that the link between the fbi and the censorship of this particular story is much more direct there have mm. been particular agents who have been um, singled out as actually warning the tech firms about this particular story or that there was going to be something around hunter coming down the pike and that they effectively censored it afterwards so what you have here is it's hard to overstate the scale of the sort of censorship scandal that we're talking about the American security state outsourcing censorship to the private sector, trying to get around the First Amendment in that sense. And yet their response is snark, yeah. cynicism. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nothing. You only got that because you're hanging out with Elon Musk. This is how both unserious but also kind of captured that section of American media is at this point. This is like the biggest scandal <laughs> of recent years. And yet, as you say, they just dismiss it, mm-hmm. partly because I think they know their own role in it, really. Yeah, and, and Joe, what do you make of this? You know, it's, it's supposedly that... You know, it's it's the left that is now seeing itself um, aligned with big tech, aligned with the security services. I mean, that's quite a turnaround. No, absolutely. And I think we've got to remember that as we have this conversation, the online safety bill is currently going through the UK's parliament, Mm. uh, which would actually enshrine in law the idea that tech companies have got to act in this censorious way. So we're kind of talking about collusion between um, the state and tech companies. But this is exactly what a lot of people are are pushing for and, and they don't want it to come shrouded under the word collusion. They want this to be the legitimate, the the kind of the proper way yeah. that things happen. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, it, it is sections of the left that are, that are at the forefront of pushing for this censorship, um, particularly uh, in, in terms of politics. And they have the friends, they have the people who they're able to call upon um, within Twitter. And, and I think it was very interesting revelation that, that actually both, you know, we can't let the right off the hook, you know. Yeah. Clearly, one of the things that comes out out of this, these Twitter files um, was that uh, the Trump team mm. had been trying. So mm. I don't think the right can really claim the moral high ground here in any yeah. way. You know, Trump, uh, the Trump team had been trying to um, get Twitter to play this game for them as well, uh, but just didn't simply didn't have the contacts who were willing to do their bidding. Uh, quite, they didn't have quite as many contacts there as the Dem, the Democrats mm. did have. So that that was the way this was able to work. In the left's favour far more successfully. But I think if, if a Trump team did have the contacts, I'm convinced they would have been every bit as censorious um, yeah. as, as the Democrats had been. Tom, you got anything to add? No, I just completely agree. With that. I mean, Trump famously said that people who um, always banged on about the First Amendment were silly people. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of says something about what we're talking about here. So let's move on to talk about um, Harry and Meghan, the blockbuster new mm. documentary oh. series. Um, the first three episodes have been dumped onto Netflix. Um, I've got through one so far. <laughs> got one and a half speed as well. That was the, the way. <laughs> like the how have you found it so far? Have you been enjoying um, Meghan's anecdotes? Well, it's, it's funny because it's so far, and I've also you know, read around what other people, you know, more courageous souls than I have already got through it, which is that it's kind of half and half the kind of usual hit job against the royal family in the British media, but half this kind of puff piece romance thing, mm. um, <laughs> which is partly, it's a slightly uh, side and slightly bitchy point, but it's also, I do wonder whether people, you know, people are going to, Harry and Meghan have to be confronted with the fact that they're not that interested, yeah. you know, because it is this sort of whirlwind romance between Harry who kind of, 
talking about his years, you know, his kind of gap year in Africa is a kind of like gap year British posh boy versus Megan as this kind of live, laugh, love, you know, <laughs> Californian who think their love story is eternal and really fascinating. That's kind of a big chunk of it. Yeah. Um, the other half is a lot of the, um, a lot of the allegations that we've kind of previously heard with maybe slightly different anecdotes attached mm. or slightly different sort of news lines. So you've heard Megan talk about the fact that she didn't feel like she was even sort of black necessarily until she was kind of raced by the British coverage, which focused so much on this particular thing. Again, this kind of completely unsubstantiated allegation yeah. that all the British coverage was racist, which is, there's literally nothing about that as we know. Um, as as well as the sense that it's essentially a kind of gilded cage that the press was really intrusive and so on and so forth. So there's nothing brand new in it so far, at least. There's another three episodes, I believe, still to come. Mm. And I wonder that combination of them being quite irritating, as always, and also the fact that at some point people are going to start to see through not just the kind of thinness of these allegations, but also because as soon as they give an interview, as soon as they have one of these episodes drop, there's always the other side of the story comes out. You yeah. always find out that their truth collides quite significantly with what everyone else involved considers to be mm -hmm. the truth. There's already been some examples of that we could talk about. I do wonder if, whilst certainly the case in Britain, maybe less so in America, where I think there's a bit more of an appetite for this thing at the moment, where a lot of people who were really riding for Harry and Meghan are going to quietly step away at this point is my... Yeah, I'm not convinced. I, <laughs> yeah. hope so. I hope so, but I'm not convinced. I mean, just a couple of things to say. First of all, on the love story. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but get that out of the way. Um, I think what's kind of revealing about that is not just the complete and utter narcissism, narcissism of assuming that the world is interested in your love story, as mm. you point out, Tom. Um, you know, that is something that we've come to expect. But beyond that, there's this layer of kind of the way... Again, it's become a bit of a joke, but this famously privacy um, loving couple yeah. have put this love story out there in so much detail. Mm. Mm. I mean, there is, I mean, even down to the text messages they exchanged when they first met, which is not as a blind date as we've been led to believe up to now, but apparently through Instagram. I mean, who does that? Yeah. It just seems to me that even in this kind of social media age, which we live in now, most people I know, most sane, normal people, do still have some sense of privacy. You know, the idea of putting text messages that you exchange at the start of a relationship with the person who you've gone on to marry out there on a Netflix special to be watched by millions. You know, there is no moment of their life that hasn't been photographed and those photographs have now not been made public. You know, you've got incredibly intimate pictures of Megan lying on a bed, of a couple kissing in their kitchen. And a, they're either kind of followed around by a professional photographer mm. an awful lot of the time, or B, they're putting these kind of intimate selfies out there yeah. for public consumption. And I know this point's been made before about the capacity with which they erode their own privacy, but I mean, it just seems on this documentary yeah. now, especially absolutely off the scale beyond what any normal person would do. Because this documentary obviously comes off the back of... Um, Megan's podcast series, which is, <laughs> I mean, she interviews many famous women, but it is mostly about her, yeah, let's prop, face yeah, it. To sort of talk yeah. about her. <laughs> yeah. She spends the first four minutes um, retelling this story, which I'm sure we will come on to, um, one of our favourite <laughs> Megan stories. Um, you know, there was the Oprah interview, famously, yeah. the tell-all Oprah interview. Harry's written a book. I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Tom, let's talk a little bit about the truth yeah. um, and how it might 
how recollections may vary to put yeah, it in the in the queen's careful. language mm, no definitely i mean it's something which <laughs> there was an ex- another explosion of this when the trailers came out which of course you know there's always a bit of fudging in the editing suite but because mm. <laughs> going into this you had a couple of trailers drop which very misleadingly presented royal pool reporters as paparazzi yeah. which used footage from outside of casey price sentencing as if it was invasion <laughs> against them and so on and so forth it didn't re- you know i think the uh, probably the most damning one was taking this picture of the royal family on the buckingham palace oh, yeah. balcony kind of cropping it to make it look like the uh now Prince and Princess of Wales are in the middle and Harry and Meghan are off to the side. It was actually the inverse of the truth. So all of this, the, the construction of a narrative, if you like. But if you go back, as we were talking about, over the kind of course of their whole story, the story of Megxit and so on and so forth, which they always present very explicitly, including this in this documentary, is you need to hear the truth. You yeah. need to hear our side of the story. So much of it collides with what the other people involved are saying, to put it lightly. So... The Oprah interview, oh, the Archbishop of Canterbury actually married us a few days beforehand. We got him on the phone and said, let's just do it just up. He <laughs> yeah. categorically says that did not happen. Yeah. Um, of course, her saying in that recent amazing profile in the cut that when she went to the 2019 premiere of The Lion King, that <laughs> the South African actor involved approached her and said, we celebrated your wedding on the streets of South Africa as we did when Mandela was freed, the only gentleman it seems that she could be referring to has no recollection of this conversation, wasn't even at the premiere instead. Yeah. So there are stories like this time and time again. And the most generous you would be, there's a kind of sense that there's a constant kind of desire to frame themselves in a particular narrative. But there's also pretty significant questions about their relationship with the truth, which is quite significant given, first of all, the allegations that they're making not just against the monarchy, but all of British society, really. I mean, they, yeah. the press, as well as the public, they've made comments to the effect that the problem is that public opinion was against them as well because it was so bigoted. So you would think there would be more scepticism of those claims given how many of their other claims have you know, bitten the dust, as it were. But also because of the fact there was this slew of cancellations on the basis that people had questioned what it is that they had said. Yeah, Piers Morgan, Lawrence Fox, Ian Murray, who was the... Um, executive editor, I believe, the Society of Editors, or the executive um, president or whatever it was of the Society of Editors, who all, in short order, were cancelled, lost jobs, etc., because they essentially said one form or another of, I do not believe what she is saying, or I do not believe that she is a victim of racism. Yeah. And as a consequence of that, you know, heads rolled. And yet, at the same time, it hasn't really dented the narrative. And I think that's the thing about Harry and Meghan and the age that we live in, is that it is all about the narrative. It yeah. is all about a sense of what society is like. It is stained in racism, of course, even though we had this wonderfully diverse royal wedding, it yeah. had to be ruined because that's just what we're like. And that's why it will live on, I guess, in the same way that so many of these kind of faux so, stories do. You know, I, I think my favourite story has to be about the letter. So mm. An 11-year-old Meghan Markle, she's told this story many mm-hmm. times. She's told it on our podcast. She told it at the UN. She told it at the UN. Mm. <laughs> she tried to tell it. Um, she tried to tell it in an interview with Vanity Fair, um, and they fact-checked it out of the piece. But essentially, she said she says that as an 11-year-old, she wrote this letter to Procter and Gamble and to Hillary Clinton. Um, she was upset about a sexist washing up advert, and. She claims that she was congratulated for getting the advert pulled that Hillary Clinton wrote to her. Now, it's since emerged that it's probably not true. <laughs> she's, she has said it since it's been, you know, since she's been told uh, this didn't happen and that's why we didn't include it in the Vanity Fair interview. And yet she sees it as this kind of moment that kind of defines who she is, um, what her activism is all about, her politics, if you can call it that. 
what do you what do you make of that? I mean, because well, it is the politics is something we haven't actually touched on. No, yet. absolutely. Mm. I mean, I think what's interesting is that they tell these stories so convincingly yeah. that you almost think they must believe them themselves. But you see, when um, there's this kind of hilarious uh, section in the trailer where uh, Harry says, "No one knows the truth," and then without even a pause of a second, he says, "We know the truth." And in the full <laughs> episode, he kind of lists then the palace know the truth. You know, there are mm. various other people who know the full truth, and he, the word "full" in there, yeah. I think, is to emphasise that this is the real truth, the full truth, the unadulterated truth. When the fact is, we all know they wouldn't recognise the truth if it kind of leapt up and smacked them around the face. They have no understanding of the truth at all. But I think Tom's absolutely right. You know, what's coming in here is the sense that there's a narrative and, and there's mm. a narrative truth, which is exactly what they've come to mm. believe. And the whole narrative is focused upon them as victims. Yeah. You know, they are the ultimate victims. I mean, you know, you were saying earlier about whether uh, kind of in in even their own defenders might come to question mm. or get a bit bored of of hearing these sto- uh, stories repeated. I wonder to what extent um, their claims to victimhood can withstand an age when many people in this country now are, are too poor to put their heating on. Mm. You know, people yeah. are sitting there freezing cold, struggling to put food on the table for their kids. And then you've got this couple in this mansion in Montecito, Mm. you know, the absolute epitome of privilege, Mm. kind of banging on about the fact that they are victims of, of, you know, everybody's against them. You know, they are at the top of this pyramid of victims and their entire status seems to come from these claims to victimhood and to being persecuted, to being oppressed. And it's kind of just cringingly, embarrassingly not true and mm. awful, but but it's that I think which sustains, and it's the, this belief in their own victimhood that sustains them through um, believing their own story. Mm. And in, in so many ways, you do feel like, <laughs> as much as Harry, Meghan are a ridiculous couple, the v- v- celebration of them or the holding them up as kind of hero victims and so on is such a story of our age in mm. so many different respects because of the fact that as you say joe if you have a claim to victimhood you can be lionized kind of uncritically that um almost identity politics is it marries with celebrity narcissism very neatly the way in which they're talked about in a kind of political sense they just won a human rights award mm-hmm. in new york so a prestigious yeah. Human Rights Award in New York City this week for what? Mm. For being them? Yeah. For you know speaking their truth? Mm. Is that's that is? I mean, obviously, I'm sure they've been involved in a few charities and so on. But that's it is that sense in which um, there's something about our particular era which has completely eroded the boundary between influencer and activist. Between um, because of the nature of identity politics has allowed incredibly rich, well-off people to pose as victims. They are such a they are they are very much kind of creatures of that and i think in so so many respects that's why whilst it might strike so many of us as so odd it's just because of the fact that that's the kind of world that they've walked into that they they have mm-hmm. as a phenomenon have emerged into if you like. yeah no i think that's a really important point and um i mean if you look this week they were awarded this kennedy prize yeah. you know we're seriously supposed to believe that they've done more to advance human rights this year than i mean you look at uh, kind of other very notable figures mm-hmm. um you know Zelensky's in ukraine for example you know who could have really uh, kind of done with the publicity around being being awarded this prize so 
you know, sometimes I'm tempted to look at Harry and Meghan and, and I've just been talking about how they've put all these family, very intimate family photos out there and breached their own privacy in a way as if they're almost a bit deluded, as if they're kind of out of touch with reality, that they've bought into their own narrative to such extent they don't know what's real and what's not real anymore. So it's easy to kind of look at them in that way. But I think the point is that within the culture that we're living in at the moment, so many different things kind of confirm their own view of yeah. themselves in mm. this way. So, I mean, I think everybody who nominated them for this prize has actually helped fuel this mm. sense that they do have of themselves as, as you put it, hero victims in the world. Uh, and so they're kind of meeting far too often, I think, a, a receptive audience for the view of themselves that they're putting forward. Definitely. My, my only hope is that in the same way that now people look back on about 10 years ago and think it was bizarre that like Bono was everywhere, you know. <laughs> holding forth on world affairs mm. the same way in which Harry and Meghan have been seen <laughs> as kind of exemplars of the struggle. <laughs> uh, you know, you can only live in hope, I suppose. Have you signed up to become a Spike supporter yet? Spike Supporters is our thriving donor community. And if you're a Spike supporter, you can get access to a whole range of extra perks. And I've got an incredibly special one I want to tell you about. On Monday the 19th of December at 7pm London time, we have the brilliant Toby Young joining Brendan O'Neill for a special live recording of The Brendan O'Neill Show, and it's exclusive to Spike supporters. You'll be able to watch the recording online, plus we'll also be taking audience questions. So if you're already a Spike supporter, why not claim your free ticket now via the Spike supporters hub? If you're not a Spike supporter yet, then now is the time to sign up. For as little as £5 or more per month, you can become a Spike supporter, then you can sign up to this free event. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to sign up now. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. See you there. So finally, let's turn to Mermaids. The controversial children's charity is now going to be under an official statutory investigation by the Charity Commission. I mean, Joe, the first question that sort of comes to mind is what took the charity yeah. commission so long? <laughs> <laughs> No, completely. Um, and I mean, there have been so many scandals um, th that have broken over the course of recent months. Um, scandals concerning the people who are on the board of trustees and, and safeguarding concerns, far more serious safeguarding concerns, dealing with the treatment of, of I think the word vulnerable gets used too, far too frequently nowadays. But the kind of children who are contacting mermaids and really do have a stake to that label of, of these are vulnerable children who are confused about their identity you know, really are in a kind of worrying, troubling place who actually need some reassurance that, no, you're perfectly normal, yeah. you know, go go and carry on. You know, it could be just a phase. Um, let's keep a, a watchful eye on, on how you feel. They don't need pushing down the route of being told that they are transgender. Um, where, what's your address? And we can send you out chest binders without your parents' permission. And th this is the kind of thing that Mermaids has been up to and, and funneling very young children into completely unmoderated chat forums as well. Um, so all of these scandals have been bubbling away under the surface. But, but 
you know, this is in some ways just the highlight and the most recent things that have attracted everyone's attention. The director, Susie Green, I mean, I'm sure everybody by now has seen her famous mm. TEDx YouTube video. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't, I would urge everyone to watch it because it is toe-curlingly awful the way she is so upfront about talking about the fact that her husband couldn't cope with the fact that her son um, appeared at a young age to be slightly effeminate, had a preference for playing with girls' toys and his dad couldn't cope with that fact. And the mum then corrected her son by taking him for gender reassignment, so-called gender reassignment surgery at the age of 16. I mean, this is a completely awful personal story. And yet, that has been out there for years now, completely in pu full public view. She's She's been proud uh, to show this video and have it circulating. And it's very, very interesting if you track the comments on this YouTube video, you know, go back a few years and they're all completely celebratory. Yeah. Oh, well done, Susie. You know, mm. so brave for you to have shared this video footage. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, and then the, it's only the, the very, very, very much more recent comments that are raising alarm about what she's actually saying and suggesting that this isn't the brilliant story it's cracked up to be. So I think that, so the thing about mermaids is, you know, people have used the phrase hiding in plain sight. This was all out there. So I think you're absolutely right to ask, you know, what has taken the Charity Commission so long? To answer that question, my guess is it's because um, mermaids has been celebrated by celebrities, by public figures. It's had the back of key institutions in the UK. Harry and Meghan. Harry and Meghan, exactly. <laughs> the through line of it. <laughs> it's been funded by the National Lottery. Uh, it's won government grants from the Department for Education. It's been in schools, prisons, the police service. It's got absolute or had absolute official legitimacy. So why enough would the Charity Commission launch an investigation against it? Tom. With this particular case, obviously we'll see what happens with this particular compliance review and so on. And maybe I'm just in an oddly sunny, optimistic mode. But it does feel like things are kind of heading in the right direction on the gender identity question in the UK, at least if you compare it to certainly the US, where things are still going absolutely nuts in so yeah. many different respects. Because that's what, if you kind of take the combination of you had all these gender critical women who, you know, winning, broadly speaking, their sort of, uh, their, tri their workplace tribunal cases for being sacked or ostracised or otherwise for their particular views. It was obviously the... Uh, cast review in relation to the Tavistock Clinic, updating mm. of NHS guidelines. Now you kind of have, um, obviously, the the Charity Commission review in relation to mermaids, various different points in which kind of institutions, whether it be a courtroom or whether it be, you know, a regulator or so on, starting to kind of do their job and trans or gender ideology not really being able to withstand that kind of level of criticism, the sort of scrutiny that it was always being denied. It's not to say that it's a kind of perfect picture and there's so many other areas, but I'm kind of struck by how, un particularly unlike America, John, I'm not sure how you feel about this, it does feel like we're on two completely different trajectories. Yeah, yeah I'm, not as, I'm not as optimistic, I'm afraid, at all. I mean, if you look north of the border, you've got the most shocking legislation mm. going through mm. in Scotland that will allow children as young as, well, I would still say children at the age of 16, to change their gender identity, a uh, piece of paper, uh, no questions asked. You know, you can do that. I think it's three-month time 
scale that, yeah. that you will all you have to submit. And this is being pushed through the Scottish Parliament by Nicola Sturgeon. Um, I read in the newspaper today that, that the, the timing for this going through the Scottish Parliament is now set for something like the 22nd and 23rd of December, i.e., you know, when the press won't be covering it. Mm. Um, people are going to be looking the other way. And I think you're right in the sense that Sturgeon is at least aware that there is now opposition to this. Mm. And perhaps a year ago, she'd have been a bit more bold and put this through in the normal way and expected to get it through the Scottish Parliament without the pushbacks. I mean, I guess one good thing is at least she is aware that there will be criticisms levelled at her for doing this. But the fact is this this legislation does look set to pass. And yeah. what not only does that put young people in Scotland, as far as I'm concerned, um, at, at risk of making kind of very life-changing decisions at a ridiculously young age, but it also creates, raises kind of very important questions that few people are asking about the the nature of the union yeah. in the UK. You know, if a kid lives in Berwick-upon-Tweed, for example, or Cumbria, and fancies changing their gender, you know, what's to stop them mm. just hopping across the border, kind yeah. of filling in the paperwork or whatever you have to do and coming back? How can the UK as a, a union exist when you've got two very, very different laws operating? And my other concern, reason for being less optimistic, is just that I think so many institutions have taken on board the letter of and the spirit of mermaid policies that they are almost in a position to drop the label mermaids, mm. to do away with the badge, because the the actual spirit of, of that this idea, which I think is the most dangerous idea of all, that children are born in the wrong body, you know, that's been so accepted amongst so many of these elite institutions or, or you know, even within schools that this is now a kind of completely mm. accepted um orthodoxy it's become that that like say you you can almost do away with mm. mermaids they can be sacrificed mm. because the bigger picture has, has been accepted there'll always be other groups to fill the void mm. i suppose exactly it, it is interesting though because also how the, the extent to which this has become a live issue mm. in a way that it wasn't even until very recently is something that i'm also quite cheered by but and that's not something that's come easily obviously a lot of people have had to go through hell in many cases to get to this particular point there's been a lot of agitation there's been a lot of kind of fighting in one particular arena and then moving to the next and so on and so forth but it is striking how the 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 force of the polling public opposition say in Scotland to these measures is really quite significant yeah what's interesting is looking at the recent kind of um Nats and social attitude surveys and stuff you've actually seen public attitudes towards what we could call like gender ideology issues harden over mm. the course of recent years and that's not because as some people would like to put it everyone's become really transphobic because they've been listening to too many julie bindle lectures or whatever it's obviously because of the fact that the implications of these measures whether it's everything from changing um your gender on a passport through to women's spaces and so and so on and so forth has become so much clearer to everyone because that people are actually talking about it yeah. you know uh, men in particular might not have to think about the importance of sex-based rights etc have been confronted with the issue to a greater degree um, as well as it just becoming clear to everyone more broadly so it is a kind of interesting thing that this is become so much more of a kind of live political issue and the the, the thing that cheers me especially with education i think education was more than any other realm it's going to hang around in there for so long without very concerted effort but it does feel at the moment like there's more of a they will have more of a fight on their hands yeah. than they would have done 
certainly five years ago, you, you know, can, even a few years ago, it feels like. You can certainly see why the trans activists didn't want to debate over this <laughs> <Yeah>. issue. <laughs> no, well, I think the ultimate irony is why this has come before the Charity Commission now is because it was mermaids who took the LGB alliance to, to court for breach of mm. Charity Commission regulations. Yeah. And it was that that exposed a lot of the bullshit, really, mm. that that was behind um, the, the ideas that mermaids were putting forward. And you just think if it hadn't overreached in that way, um, then then who knows, we might not be where we are now with the Charity Commission investigating them. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.